Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are going to continue Article 4 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the negative statements, those teachings we reject and condemn, because they are against Scripture with regard to the teaching on good works. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the dual parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Winehill, and my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton, pastor of Zion Lutheran in Mascouda, Illinois. Pastor Clayton, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be with you today. Absolutely. So we're just going to go ahead and jump right into these negative statements. A lot to talk about. Good works, as we even highlighted on the past two episodes uh, setting up the status of the controversy and the affirmative statements. Uh, go back and listen to those archived episodes on KFUO.org. Um, definitely commend that to you. But uh, th- this is something that still pervades and, and is an issue in the church. And so we're going to jump right into with a lot to talk about. So again, we read from the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from CPH, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is the epitome of the formula of Concord. Uh, negative statements, Article 4 of Good Works, picking up with paragraph 16. Uh, and uh, negative statement one, but we're just going to go ahead and read all of the negative statements. All right. No, we're not. We're going to take them one by one. That's what my guest requested. I already forgot what he requested of me. I apologize. This is just negative statement one. We reject and condemn the following ways of speaking when they are taught and written. Good works are necessary to salvation. Also, no one ever has been saved without good works. Also, It is impossible to be saved without good works. All right. Now, this one very clearly begins with we reject and condemn. And and this is one of the things that as we've been going through the formula of Concord, when you're listening to an audio uh, 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 show of this, obviously uh, a little bit more difficult to to recognize sometimes. This is a statement. These are statements we, we do not agree with. We do not think are faithful to Scripture. So go ahead, Dr. Clayton, and uh, explain why. Why is this not faithful to Scripture? Well, we need to understand that we need to read the entire statement that we reject. We reject that good works are necessary to salvation. And it's those last two words, to salvation, that are really the keys to understanding why we would reject this statement. We certainly don't reject good works, and that's a problem that will be addressed in the next point, that we advocate good works, we encourage good works, we recognize that good works are, well, good, just they don't play a role in salvation. And so to say good works are necessary to salvation is going two words too far. In fact, we could go so far as to say that good works are necessary 
as a healthy part of the Christian life. They simply follow. They exist. They happen. But to say that good works are necessary to salvation is too much. Uh, They are not a component of how or why we are saved. And in order to maintain uh, the fourth article of the Augsburg Confession, that article on which the church stands and falls, that we are saved by grace through faith without works of the law, we have to separate good works from faith and salvation uh, in very clear terms here. We can't commingle good works with God's complete and total work of salvation on our behalf. If we mix in good works, then we are claiming a part of the method of salvation, which then uh, the Reformers would say things like uh, tramples Christ underfoot, uh, that we deny the complete sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross for us if we mix our good works into the deal. And so are good works necessary? Yes, they're, they're, they're a an integral part of the Christian life. Are they necessary to salvation? No. And so we need to be very clear as to what we're rejecting. We're not rejecting good works. Good heavens, we're not rejecting good works, (laughs) to be very clear there. But we're rejecting that they are a part of God's uh, soul work of salvation. Yeah, and this is uh, definitely highlighted in the affirmative statements, which we covered on the last episode of this show. Uh, This is affirmative statement number three, uh, inciting Ephesians 2.10. We also believe, teach, and confess that all people, but especially those who are born again and renewed by the Holy Spirit, are obligated to do good works. So we do do confess that good works have a place, and I think you've articulated this very well. The problem becomes those those two words, and it ties not only back to Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession, which is the chief confession of of our Lutheran Church, but the previous article, Article 3, here in the Formula of Concord, also, which is our righteousness of faith before God, right? You know, that, you know, how how do we have assurance of it? Well, it's by grace through faith, right? And you uh, quoted uh, positive Article 3 from the show last week, but it becomes clear also in Article 4 of the Affirmative Theses, in this sense, the words necessary, shall, and must are correctly used and in a Christian way to describe the regenerate. And so we can say that good works are necessary in our Christian life as God has bestowed this gift of salvation upon us freely uh, through sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, that we are saved only by grace through faith by what Christ has done for us, has revealed for us in Scripture. Following that, yes, Christians do see good works as a necessity, but not in terms of the act of salvation. And that's where the distinction comes. And so then this might be a, um, you know, a logic, you know, kind of problem to work out in our minds here. But but it, it seems to me then, I, I, I think the average person can say, absolutely, good works are necessary. We'll confess that, you know, as, as faith, you know, as, as we've just faithfully talked about, um, but not to salvation. You know, that's entirely excluded. We covered that also under affirmative statement uh, two. Um, you know, that it's entirely excluded from the question about salvation. But then what about these other two points here? No one ever has been saved without good works. And also it is impossible to be saved without good works. So if we're saying they we can say they're necessary, just entirely excluded from the matter of salvation. What's going on with these two statements then? 
Well, the controversy developed actually several decades before the formula of Concord, the Epitome, and the Solid Declaration were put together. And a couple of the key players were George Major, a professor on the Wittenberg faculty, and then Nicholas von Amdorf, who is also a good friend and close uh, associate of Martin Luther on the opposite sides of the issue here. And... George Major was the one that would say that uh, good works are necessary for salvation. He would use that uh, just simply saying that salvation kind of encompasses all of our Christian life. Uh, also Melanchthon spoke in this way early on, and then he stopped using these terms that good works are necessary to salvation. It's not that he changed his uh, personal understanding. He just recognized that the words were unhelpful in the discussion. So he, <laughs> he, uh, he changed the words without really changing his position, perhaps. Um, but Major didn't change his, his terminology. And he would say good works are necessary to salvation. Now, he understood that—he said he understood that we're saved by grace— without works of the law and we're saved um, by God's work alone, but that good works are um, integral to that in the Christian life. The The reason that we have these statements here, like no one has ever been saved without good works, also it is impossible to be saved without good works. The reason that those who oppose George Major, such as Nicholas von Amsdorf, um, would advocate, uh, you know, disagreeing with these statements is they, they would often point out, well, what about somebody that is converted on their deathbed? So perhaps they had lived a, a life of wanton sin and wickedness, uh, lived without any sign of repentance, and then on their deathbed, uh, they recognize the error of their ways, they hear the law, they are convicted, they uh, repent, are brought to baptism, and uh, profess faith in Jesus Christ, and then in relatively short order they die. The argument of Nicholas von Amsdorf and those who would um, disagree with the statement that good works are necessary to salvation would be if a person dies quickly after conversion, after being saved by grace through faith, and they don't have the opportunity to demonstrate these good works, they're still saved. Because that salvation is given as a gift from God. And the fact that one dies quickly after receiving that salvation without having the time to do good works then would show the falsehood of the statement that uh, no one is ever saved without good works. Also, it is impossible to be saved without good works because it's entirely possible that someone receives the free gift of God's salvation completely by grace, dies, and doesn't have the opportunity to do good works. The uh, example sometimes that's brought up could be the thief on the cross. Jesus tells him, truly I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, the thief on the cross had very limited time to do any good works following that absolutely clear proclamation of salvation from Jesus Christ himself. He couldn't give alms to the poor. He couldn't live out his vocation, perhaps, as a husband or father. We know nothing about him, but we, we can you know guess maybe what his uh, various relationships were. He couldn't care for his aging parents. He couldn't do anything other than hang there and die. Uh, and yet Jesus says, 
you will be with me in paradise. Now, if we were to hold as true the statement, no one has ever been saved without good works, also, it is impossible to be saved without good works, then we would have a little challenge saying, well, what then are the good works that the thief on the cross performed? Or what are the good works that someone who has lived a life of wickedness and rejection of the faith and yet receives salvation and professes Christ on his deathbed, what are the demonstrable good works that they do that then are necessary for salvation? So they've been saved by grace, and then if the Lord calls them home, they're still just as saved. That's why we reject these statements that no one has ever been saved without good works, and also it is impossible to be saved without good works. Now, in in practical fact, in everyday life, most of the time there will be abundant good works following salvation. So in practical fact, it's almost but not quite a non-issue. But when we're dealing with theology, we can't have almost non-issues. Theology has to be perfectly clear. And so we do reject that it is um, necessary to salvation to do good works and that it's impossible to save without good works because there is a time there where perhaps there's not the opportunity to do good works. Now, if I could um, redirect just a little bit here, You mentioned as you set up this question that there was an issue of logic going on here. And I want to pick up another little issue of logic when we talk about the necessity of good works to salvation, this initial question. Um, And the, the logical fallacy that that statement presents is that necessity usually assumes a previous instance. And so if one thing is necessary to another, the necessary thing logically precedes the other. And so think about this in terms of the phrase, good works are necessary to salvation. Remember, something that is necessary in logic would be assumed to precede. And so instead of necessary, let's use the word precede. Good works precede salvation. And now you really see the problem that if good works are necessary, meaning they have to happen before salvation can take place. If you think of this in a time-based system, not just theoretical necessity, but if you think about it in terms of time, then you see very clearly, well, we can't do any good works before salvation. We confess that before God pours his grace upon us, all of our good works are as filthy rags. We can do nothing to please God, and that ultimately is a definition of good work, a work that pleases God. We can do nothing to please God of our own apart from being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and having God see Christ's righteousness in us. So if we take this in the logical progression of time, and say good works are necessary, that is, must necessarily precede salvation, we obviously see how problematic the statement is. So, and and this is one of the things that I was getting, I did a little looking at the writings of John, John, <laughs> George Major, mm-hmm. um, 
And then also I see this present even in kind of our Anabaptist theologians, even of still today, right? And how they talk about, you know, um, you know, the the, uh, the believer's baptism and being saved, you know, later and so forth. And, and it's interesting you brought in the thief of the cross because I I, I wish I had a direct quote on this, but uh, I'm pulling out of my brain now. Uh, in major, I think he's. Uh, talks specifically about that instance, and he says that his confession of Christ in rebuking his 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 fellow mm. um, thief on the other side of Jesus, right, um, is that faithful confession is a good work, and and it's interesting that I I see this you know kind of again kind of in our Anabaptist theologians and so forth of. Our work of confession, of coming to faith, you know, uh, us, you know, uh, making that confession of, yes, I believe, is a good work that they are attributing to them. And obviously, we can tear this all apart, especially as Lutherans. Um, and, and I think it's most simply done this way. When we talk about the good works that are necessary to salvation, it's good works that save you. It's just not your good works. It's not your confession, right? It's the good works that in terms of necessity, in terms of preceding, it's what Christ has done on the cross. It's his perfect satisfaction of, of God's law that, that he imputes to us, right? He, he gives to us. It's that happy exchange. And so I think that this helps us solve a little bit, at least that logical um, issue, but, but also to see what, what is at work here is, is whose works are they looking to? And in this particular instance, right, it would seem like they're looking to the works of the individual person, which are not are not even good enough because they're not even good works until you are saved. Right. right? And we certainly talk about it that way. And you bring up the um, Anabaptists or today more so the decision theology camp Mm -hmm. of the Christian church. And this is... I'm sorry, this is just what drives me batty about decision theology, is that it places the necessity of a human action prior to salvation. And so a a person who holds to decision theology, on the one hand, will likely say, oh, I agree with you, Lutherans. I agree that we're saved by grace through faith. I agree that salvation is a gift of God. But then they'll say, but in order to have that gift, you have to do something first. You have to choose Jesus. You have to accept Jesus into your heart. You have to oftentimes pray the sinner's prayer. And then when you have given your heart to Jesus, when you have prayed the sinner's prayer, then God gives his gift of salvation. Well, what is all of that? I mean, how many times do I use the word you have to in what we just talked about, right? You have to decide. You have to accept. You have to choose. You have to pray. All of these are uh, obligations for you to do. And so that work of decision, that work of acceptance, that work of prayer, then in their theology would precede God's acting is like God is handcuffed until you tell God, okay, you can come in and save me now, and I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> but God, you can't act until uh, until I have first done the good work of giving my heart a uh, piece of sinful trash that it is to you. 
And then once you have my heart that I have freely given, then God, you can save me. But it's placing that good work of deciding, of praying prior to God's saving act. Uh, and so it really does rob Christ of his glory. And it does say that the initial move of salvation is our work, not God's, as opposed to in Lutheran theology, we say, God is the one who calls, to, to jump to a different part of the Book of Concord, one that we're very familiar with from confirmation class, hopefully, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. That God calls us. It's entirely the work of God to save us through Christ on the cross, to call us through his means of grace. It's all God's work, and we cannot do anything prior to that. And that's why uh, Nicholas von Amsdorf and others would be so forceful to say that we cannot mix good works into any conversation of salvation, that we must reject the statement that uh, good works are necessary to salvation. That has to be rejected. Otherwise, we're placing our decision, our work, our goodness, our worthiness, something prior to the work of Christ, which we can't do. Yeah, which also then, in my mind, uh, connects back to the first article on original sin and the controversy that we talked about there, uh, which is that, uh, you know, what uh, what becomes an issue then is, is what did Christ do on the cross? And, and the thinking, the controversy back in article one was that he made it possible for sin to be made it possible for grace. Right. And then this is uh, you've articulated. Well, I think, you know, the very the very issue that we have. Well, if it's then up to me, you know, Christ has made it possible, but it's up to me to make that decision and so forth. Well, then I just really don't have a lot of hope. Um, but the fact that Christ has done it is our clear confession on this. And uh, and I and I love the uh, Concord Catechism connection. We always love that on this show. So uh, thanks for bringing in the catechism mm -hmm. as well. All right. Uh, this is this is a great discussion on uh, one point here. But uh, as as often happens on here, we see the early points really kind of flow into the next points. It's a it's a logical progression. This is a work of logic uh, here. And uh, and so we'll uh, we'll often spend a lot of time kind of laying that foundation and then we'll see this build. So then this is picking up with uh, paragraph 17, negative statement number two. We reject and condemn as offensive and detrimental to Christian discipline, the bare expression, good works are harmful to salvation. In these last times, it is certainly no less needful to encourage people to Christian discipline, to the way of right and godly living. That's uh, defining what Christian discipline is and to do good works. We need to remind them of how necessary it is that they exercise themselves in good works as a declaration of their faith. Matthew 5, verse 16. And gratitude to God. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. But works should not be mingled in the article of justification. For people may be just as damned by an Epicurean delusion about faith as they are by papistic and Pharisaic confidence in their own works and merits. All right, go ahead. Break this right. one down for us. Well, I've been uh, batting around the name Nicholas von Amsdorf a good bit in this first segment. And so, unfortunately, while he was correct in opposing George Major in, in saying that good works are necessary to salvation, Nicholas von Amsdorf rightly rejected that statement. Uh, unfortunately, he went too far the other direction. And so I've heard it described that doctrine tends to be a very 
thin and narrow path with a ditch on either side. And so when you try to veer away from a problem from the ditch on one side of the path, the problem is you often swerve into the ditch on the other side of the path. And that's unfortunately what happened with Nicholas von Amsdorf. He rightly swerved away from Major's problem in the ditch of saying that good works are necessary to salvation. And so he swerved entirely the other direction and instead said this, really kind of ridiculous statement that then good works are detrimental to salvation, uh, which goes against, you know, everything that um, the Lutherans were trying to teach, and in fact fell right into the hands of the Roman Catholic theologians who had brought this up already, I believe, from the time of the Augsburg Confession. When they read Article 4, they said, well, then you oppose good works, and people will never do good works. And so Lutherans had to be on defense against this very thing from from the very beginning, because the Roman Catholics are saying, well, if good works aren't necessary to salvation, then you're saying good works don't have a place and nobody will do them and everything will be horrible. And the Lutherans had to be very clear to say, no, we advocate good works. We support good works entirely. We just don't mix them in with justification by grace through faith without works of the law. Unfortunately, von Amsdorf apparently missed that memo and played right into the hands of Roman Catholic critics in saying good works are detrimental to salvation, which is obviously wrong. And the, the confessors here actually just kind of brush it aside. They, they say um, there are a few people maybe that say this, really kind of only one. Nicholas von, Dor von Amsdorf was really the only one, and even people that strongly agreed with him in rejecting uh, George Major, distanced themselves from Van Amstorff very quickly. And they said, no, you went too far. That's, you know, that's nonsense. We don't say that good works are, are detrimental to salvation. Uh, that clearly is an overstatement. Yeah, and I, I love... I love how you uh, set up this, you know, kind of the two ditches and so forth. We, we've we brought on this show several times. Uh, I love Luther's image that he uses in talking about law and gospel uh, with this, right? You know, you're riding your horse or your donkey or whatever, you know, animal of that sort down the road. And a drunk gets on there, you know, and he falls off into the one ditch. Mm -hmm. And he gets back up and he, he resolutely says, well, I'm not going to fall off on that anymore. So then he throws <laughs> all his weight to the other side and falls off to the other right. ditch. And and that is, it is the image that runs through my mind in all of these controversies, right? Is Well, we're definitely, I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, come on, to salvation, really? Well, then you're falling off and it's a completely ridiculous thing right. to the other side. And so uh, certainly that, uh, you know, that faithful middle there is, 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 is the goal to kind of hold this tension. And you're just going to have to hold tension here a little bit as we take a break <laughs> and join us right after this. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Thank you. 
welcome back to Concord Matters as we have our guest, Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton, pastor of Zion Lutheran in Mascuda, Illinois, and I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of St. Paul's Wine Hill and Emmanuel West Point. And we were holding attention here as we went to break. Uh, very, very tense break here. And uh, we were we were talking about this statement that good works are detrimental to salvation. And we, and we kind of said that, well, that's ridiculous, right? Obviously. Mm-hmm. But then it, it would seem like probably Luther talks this way, right? You know, at the time of the Reformation, it would seem like if, if you're putting your trust in good works to salvation, maybe it is detrimental, right? So is there a faithful way we can talk about the detriment of, uh, you know, the, this this good works and, and salvation issue? Uh, go ahead and take it away, Pastor Clayton. Yeah, we, we left before the break kind of beating up on poor Nicholas von Amsdorf. And he had given this statement, good works are detrimental to to salvation, which in most usages is, like we said before the break, it's just absurd. And nobody rallied to von Amsdorf's side here on this. Everybody rejected him, except that von Amsdorf was picking up on something that Luther could say early in his career as a reformer, where there was so much commingling of good works with salvation that Luther might at times just kind of in frustration throw his hands up and say, no, they're not part of salvation. And when you mix them in, they're detrimental. Um, You can just kind of see Luther. uh, Luther was not one prone to um, careful and considered uh, theology at times. Oftentimes, he just, you know, let loose with whatever is on his mind. And so von Amstorff would have heard this and kind of picked up and said, well, no, good works are detrimental to salvation. In normal usage, that is just absurd. It's it's wrong. But there are a couple of, of very narrow understandings in which we could possibly say that. This is picked up a little bit in the solid declaration of the Formula of Concord, also Article 4 on Good Works. This is in paragraph 37. And so we pick up reading there regarding the idea that good works are harmful to salvation, or to use the terminology from von Onsdorf in the epitome, uh, detrimental to salvation. Regarding the idea that good works are harmful to salvation, we explain ourselves clearly as follows. If anyone wants to drag good works into the article of justification, rest his righteousness or trust for salvation on them, and merit God's grace and be saved by them, St. Paul himself answers, not us. He says and repeats it three times in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. Such a person's works are not only useless and hindrance, but are also harmful. So they would seem there to verify what von Amstorf says, but it's very interesting the uh, very valid logical point that's made in this next sentence of paragraph 37 of the Solid Declaration, Article 4 on Good Works. This is not the fault of the good works themselves, but of the false confidence placed in the works, contrary to God's clear word. And so if von Amsdorf had said something like, our trust in our own good works is detrimental to salvation. Most people would have jumped up and clapped and applauded and say exactly right on. But again, <laughs> we started the segment by by saying that, you know, good works are necessary to salvation goes two words too far. And so we have to be attentive to every word of this formulation. And so 
if von Amsdorf had said our trust in good works is detrimental to salvation, that would have been fine. Except whereas Major added two words too many, von Amsdorf left off two words that should have been there. He didn't say our trust in good works is detrimental to salvation. He just said good works are detrimental to salvation. And so in the solid declaration, they point out that St. Paul does even talk that way. Luther talked that way early in his career. But really, what that was saying was a shorthand not for good works, but the pride that puffs us up based on our good works. And the problem is not the good works themselves. The problem is our pride that flows from that and our claiming them then as part of salvation. And so uh, we do reject the statement that good works are detrimental to salvation, although we would um, allow a formulation that would say, if our trust in good works becomes such that we credit our good works with salvation, then that trust in those good works becomes problematic to the point that we would even say that um, the works that led to that pride would have been detrimental because they're leading us astray. But the problem is not the good works. We advocate good works. We support good works. We say good works are necessary in the Christian life. We can say all that clearly and without any question whatsoever, but we don't place our trust in them. And that's where the problem comes. Yeah. I, it, you know, we, we've talked about on this show, uh, other guests have talked about, you know, this kind of fruit checking and so forth that goes on mm-hmm. too, I think is probably the way we see it, uh, where, you know, well, because I have all of this good work, uh, fruit in my life, you know, uh, it becomes very easy to the, then begin to trust in it. And so we do want to carefully hold that line and say, if, if you're putting your trust in seeing the fruits of good works in your life, um, that clearly you're saved, well, then you've you've still missed the point of how our righteousness of, of faith before God saves us, right? Our trust should always be in Christ, what he has done for us on the cross and not the product of good works. But we're not going to deny good works either, right? And we're going to certainly say they're going to be present in the Christian's life. Right. And um, as you bring this up, it, it brings to mind uh, the the radical uncertainty that many uh, Christians of a Protestant leaning have today. If good works, you know, fruit checking, as you say, uh, are so integral that you, you look at them and say, am I saved based on the fruits that I see? Can I document my salvation based on what I am doing? Or can I document your salvation based on the fruits that I see see you doing? And then if the answer is no, then, well, are you backslid? which is such a slippery term and gives no confidence in salvation whatsoever, or were you never saved in the first place and the works that you seem to be doing previously were just a sham and we really have to hope that at some point you will become regenerated because either you were never saved or you were saved and now backslid or, you know, there's there's no external work of God that says, yes, you are saved. And so another uh, doctrine that kind of runs in the background here that's being um, picked up on in this article while never being mentioned is the idea of once saved, always saved. And so we do not hold to once saved, always saved. Um, And we do believe that a person can fall away, as we'll see a little bit later as we get into the second point a little bit more. Uh, But we don't say, well, we believe that you are not saved right now because... (laughs) 
because, you know, I can't document X number of good works in your life. So we have the certainty that God has saved us, that we're saved by his grace, uh, but we don't mix good works into um, patting ourselves on the back and saying, well, see how saved I am because of the good works I'm doing, then the good works that we're pointing to would be our downfall. Yeah, I even play this game sometimes in Bible class or just in, in kind of casual conversation with even my own parishioners. And I say, you know, well, how do you know that I'm uh, assured of going to heaven? And they'll, and they'll say, well, you're a pastor, you have the collar on, right? You know, and, and, and then when they realize the ridiculousness of what they've said, right, they're, they're mm-hmm. kind of looking to the fruits of faith as kind of some sort of assurance. Okay, clearly you're safe. And, and I always try to get them back to the, the very simple answer, which is Christ saves you. Right. I mean, that's what we confess as Lutherans. That's that's Article three of the formula here. Article four of the uh, uh, Augsburg Confession. Right. The righteousness of faith before God is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And uh, and that's our assurance of salvation. Right. And then we also do say, well, yes, there's that is going to produce fruit. And that's kind of what we're, we've been mm-hmm. confessing here is this is going to show uh, fruit in the life. And we're not we're not even negating the fact that there's a place for Christian discipline and an exhortation to these things. I, I remember a good friend of mine used to say, you know, uh, he thought the problem with Lutherans was that we're so concerned about orthodoxy, right, teaching. Um, of God uh, and and his theology and so forth that we that we totally um, have no uh, focus on orthopraxy right the right, right living uh, as as Christians and so forth and I said no no we're not uh, <laughs> I mean just just read Luther for for very long or or my favorite guy CFW Walther uh, in the early church uh, or uh, uh, you know founding uh, first president of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod if you spend any time in his sermons or his devotional writings and so forth he's huge on orthopraxy mm-hmm. I mean just big time and and the two go together, right? When we have a right teaching, a right confession of Christ who saves us, then then the Christian discipline, the right living, the orthopraxy is going to flow forth from that. And we have no problem talking about that. But the problem then becomes, again, these, these we always have problems with two words, right? Is it to salvation or is it your mm-hmm. trust in, right? Uh, and, and we're, we're, we're ex, uh, avoiding the two extreme ditches. Right. And so in paragraph 18 of the epitome of Article 4 of the Formula of Concord, that becomes very, very clear. In these last times, it is certainly no less needful to encourage people to Christian discipline, to the right and godly living, and to do good works. And then listen to this next sentence. We need to remind them of how necessary it is that they exercise themselves in good works as a declaration of their faith and gratitude to God. And so we started this article in uh, negative thesis number one by saying we reject the statement that God that good works are necessary to salvation. And then here, in the very next point, we say we need to remind them of how necessary it is that they do good works, that they exercise themselves in good works, but not for salvation, but as a declaration of their faith and in gratitude towards God. And so on the one hand, we'll say we reject that good works are necessary to salvation. 
and yet come around in the very next statement and say, and yet we're, we're free to say that good works are necessary in the Christian life, not even as a documentation of our salvation, but in gratitude to God, in thanksgiving for all that he has done for us. And so if you are in a, uh, a loving relationship with a spouse, or if you have parents, if you have children, you are going to want to find ways that you can please them. You're going to want to do things to make their life easier, to bring them joy, to support them, to comfort them. And so in our relationship with God, God has poured down an utterly undeserved love on us. And love then fosters love. And as God has first loved us, so then we love God. And how does love express itself? In working for the good or the joy of those whom you love. And so as God has loved us, then we will love him by doing good works. We, we can't not. It's not that we're saved because of them. It's not that God's love to us is any way conditioned on them, but love is the natural response to love and works that flow from love are the natural response to love. And so as God has worked on our behalf, as God has done the ultimate good work of uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, and shown that love to us and given us that salvation freely by his work, not ours, we will respond in gratitude with good works on our own. I think uh, Luther picks up at this really well. Earlier, you uh, referenced in our Concord Catechism Connection section uh, segment there. Uh, so we'll have one in the second half of the show here, too. You, you referenced uh, the third article uh, of the Apostles' Creed and, and its explanation in the Catechism. I think Luther picks up on this in the first article of the creed as well. When he talks about, you know, uh, all the wonderful gifts that God gives to us uh, for this body and life, right? House, home, wife, children, all of those wonderful, um, you know, first article gifts. And then at the conclusion of his explanation of that, he says, all of this he gives to us purely out as fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me, right? But for this, it is my duty to thank, praise, serve, mm -hmm. and obey him, right? So, I mean, this this is this is the exact relationship we're talking about, right? It's his fatherly divine goodness and mercy to save you, right? He has done that through Jesus for you. And for this, it's good, right? You know, it is my duty to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. And I often encourage people, especially when uh, we're talking about Christian discipline in our lives in faith, right? The best thing to do that with is with the very first article gifts that he gives us, right? You know, so I should thank and praise and serve and obey him with my body and the care of it, right? And, and then the care of my family, the house and home that is given to me. All of these things, you know, when, when you beautify your home and so forth, these, these give glory to God and give a witness to what he has done out of his fatherly divine goodness goodness and mercy, namely and chiefly to save you. That's that's the central article. Um, and, and all of these things are going to flow out from it. It's interesting that as these good works flow out, they are not forced. They're not done out of compulsion. And so as we talk about, you know, caring for our family in this first article gift and so on, if let's say my wife and I have um, 
uh, an engagement at church that we know is going to push close to a mealtime, and we know we're on a tight schedule, and maybe we both have something going on in the evening, kind of a very short time for supper. If we then leave the house for our, our late afternoon appointment saying, now, kids, we're going to be home at 6 o'clock, and we need to be out the door again at 6.45. We have a very short window for supper. You must have the table set and waiting for us so that we can walk home, take the crock pot off the counter, come over and eat. You must have the table set and waiting for us when we get home. That's compulsion. That's not necessarily giving our children the opportunity to show love to us. Now, <laughs> it's it's much riskier, but if we leave the house late afternoon and come back and without any mention, we walk in and the house is clean and tidy and the dog has been walked and the table is set and the the food is ready to be served and we haven't mentioned any of this, what then was the motivation for that? It was that our children in love say we want to do what is going to best support the the good functioning of this family and we are freely going to show this love in that way and so our good works in the christian faith aren't forced or compelled i can't point at my members in the pulpit and say here's a program we're doing in church and if you're good christians you have to sign up you have to volunteer for this mission work or you have to give money to support this project that's compulsion that's not a good work instead we present what god has done give god's people the opportunity to respond and they do respond that is how good works flow they will necessarily be a part of the christian life because good works simply follow through and if we don't want to show and act on the love that we have for god then have we really received his love in the first place and yet those good works are not the cause of god's love and salvation but they absolutely will follow and we do not in any way reject that good work uh, we say that they are necessary and we do point to them as being necessary just not compelled or any part of the article of justification on salvation. Yeah, it makes me even think too, not to go too far afield with uh, all sorts of examples and so forth, but sitting in the studio here this morning with us is uh, your son, one of your wonderful blessings of God, um, and it's his birthday, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're you're taking this opportunity to take him out and so forth. So, I mean, if, if it would be, you know, it would be a ridiculous thing to say, right, you know, that uh, you are forced by God to do this good work of taking your son out for his birthday, right, and honoring the, the gift of family that God has given to you and so forth. You know, that's the only reason you have children, Dr. Clayton, right? That, I mean, that's, I that's have the, to take them out. Right, yeah, I you have, have to, to take, suffer through you, a good have deal to, yeah, with yeah. good fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. I have to do this. Yeah. I'm compelled. <laughs> you, you, you have to show love to these children. Otherwise, uh, you know, that, that then uh, you wouldn't get any children. I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of giving a ridiculous example mm -hmm. because that's, that's the 
ridiculousness of the thinking uh, that can quickly get in when you start getting into this fruit checking and idea of you know that the works are necessary to salvation then too. All right, uh, we always have this problem on this show where we we the later points don't get as much attention. So I, with a little bit more time here, I want to get to point three here uh, or uh, negative statement point three, uh, paragraph nineteen of Article Four on the Article of Good Works. We also reject and condemn the teaching that faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are not lost by willful sin, but that the saints and elect retain the Holy Spirit even though they fall into adultery and other sins and persist in them. Oh, lot, lot to wrestle with in here, so uh, go ahead and jump into it. Well, I mentioned a little bit ago that the idea of once saved, always saved was kind of running in the background here. And again, it's not stated, but it comes out here that we reject that saints continue to be saved. We reject that the saints uh, and elect retain the Holy Spirit, even though they fall into adultery and other sins and persist in them. And so, again, as you pointed out at the beginning, sometimes it's difficult to, uh, you know, work out when you reject something what it is that you are affirming. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read news articles about, you know, Supreme Court reverses lower court ruling rejecting, which then had changed what the previous, and so you're like, which negatives are making a positive? You're trying to figure out what, what you're saying. So as we say, we reject that the saints and elect retain the Holy Spirit, even though they fall into adultery and other sins and persist in them. What we're saying is that one can, through willful sin and disobedience, walk away from the faith that God had freely given. And one can reject and deny the salvation and fall from this gift of God entirely through our own choices. And whereas salvation is entirely through God's work, this rejection is entirely through our own work. But while we don't have the will, we don't have the ability to choose or begin our salvation, that is entirely God, we have every ability to reject that salvation, which unfortunately does often happen later on. And so if someone has... uh, you know, received God's gift of salvation and has begun the walk of faith. And in fact, as a part of that Christian faith, has been active in good works as we entirely encourage. But then in some way of temptation, whether, uh, you know, no matter what that form of temptation is, adultery is the one that is mentioned here in paragraph 19. It could be any other number of sins. Uh, Satan hooks us in and begins that downward spiral. And at some point, uh, we can't anymore reconcile what we are professing with what we are living. We would usually at that point stop attending church. We separate ourselves from the means of grace and eventually either through, uh, you know, a decision or simply through attrition, we fall away from faith. And that unfortunately does happen. And as a parish pastor, I'm sure much to your sorrow and to much to my sorrow, we see this. We will see someone who um, 
begins coming to church, maybe goes through adult confirmation class, maybe is baptized, makes a, a clear profession of the faith. You see them in church every Sunday. They're volunteering for every board and committee. And then a few years later, maybe they move from you know every Sunday to maybe they're in church three Sundays a month, two Sundays a month. Maybe they didn't come this month. There's a, uh, an activity they participated in last year. They don't sign up this year. And then suddenly it's been three or four months and you don't see them and then they're Christmas and Easter and then they forget Christmas and Easter. And I, I'm not just picking on adult converts here. This happens with, with anybody. But when we fall into willful sin and our life then is living in contradiction to what we profess, unfortunately, oftentimes we're going to change what we profess to match how we are living. And our lifestyle then leads us away as whether it's the uh, how the epitome says uh, fall into adultery, other sins, but as we persist in those, we can no longer hold this contrary confession in our mind and we will follow where our sinful lifestyle leads and therefore reject the Holy Spirit. Yeah, this past Sunday, as uh, I followed the one-year lectionary in my uh, uh, dual parish, um, the Old Testament reading was Genesis 3. And I thought how that I didn't preach on this, but, you know, I found myself thinking throughout the service um, and and week as well, how this, uh, you know, image that happens with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is the very image of what I see go on, what you just described in so many people, right? You, you fall into this willful sin, the eating of the fruit of the tree acknowledging good and evil in Genesis three. And then all of a sudden you, you got to hide from God and you got to clothe yourself. Right. Uh, and all the while, uh, is the beautiful grace of God that he comes and he gives the promise of the savior to Adam and Eve. He, uh, sacrifices the first sacrifice of an animal in order to clothe them better than they had done themselves. And this is all available to you the whole time. But when you're running around there trying to hide from God and so forth, you're cutting yourself off from the beautiful means of grace that, that God can save you from your own mess and misery that you have created for yourself. And, uh, and, and I was just thinking, you know, cause in my congregations, as is typical of a lot of congregations, it's a high percentage of those who have absented themselves from the means of grace, right. And have cut themselves off. And uh, what, what it does result in is a dead faith, right? You, you, you've walked away, and uh, the more you continue to starve yourself, you will die. That's, that's just the result of it. And, uh, and, and, and all the while, the means of grace to save you is right there. Uh, so don't starve yourself, right? And, and don't hide yourself uh, from God um, because it's going to lead to this, and, and it's going to lead to death. And it's just... Yeah, that, that was running through my mind as you're, mm -hmm. you're describing this. And, you know, just we see it right there in the beginning as, as a beautiful picture and image of what's going on here. Uh, with uh, just 30 seconds, you want to wrap up kind of this whole negative statement thing? Well, again, the very words and the very specific words are key. Good works are necessary, but not to salvation. And so we reject, in this sense, historically, both George Major and Nicholas von Amsdorf, we reject the statement that good works are necessary to salvation. We also reject that good works are detrimental to salvation because salvation is entirely the gift of God. God's grace alone brings this blessing to us. And then, as a natural result, we will do good works. So good works are necessary in the Christian life because they're the mark of love. But 
They are not necessary to salvation, neither are they detrimental to salvation. God saves us, and we give thanks for that in our life. Well said. That's Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton. Thank you for joining us for Concord today. And if you have a question or comment that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord on this show, you can leave us a message by phone 314-996-1542, email kfuo at kfuo.org, on social media at KFUO Radio. Thank you for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.